right, welcome back to the show. And today I'm joined by Dr. Jason Reza Giorgiani. Uh, some of you may be familiar with uh, Dr. Giorgiani. Uh, I'm familiar with a, a previous book of his uh, that I read around 2017, I think it was, which was Prometheus and Atlas. But he has a, a new workout, which is Prometheism. And I've, some people, I've seen some people call this uh, the magnum opus of Dr. Giorgiani. So I'm very interested to hear the, the central thesis of this book. Uh, but yeah, it's great to be joined by you, Dr. Giorgiani. And if you'd like to uh, give more of an introduction to your work, to the audience, before we get started, you're welcome. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Keith. Uh, thank you for uh, inviting me onto your podcast. Um, is it a magnum opus? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it resumes the philosophical trajectory of uh, Prometheus and Atlas, uh, which, uh, you know, is a, is a really uh, fundamental philosophical work that deals in a, in a rigorous way with ontology. And Prometheism is uh, resuming that philosophical trajectory with a specific focus on the challenge that we face in terms of the technological singularity. Uh, in Prometheism, I look at the technological singularity in terms of three dimensions, the way in which it could bring about an end of humanity, the way in which it could bring about the end of history, and uh, the sense in which it also uh, could, could uh, end the concept of reality as it's been understood since the Enlightenment, um, Objective Reality, capital R. Uh, so the end of uh, humanity, the end of history, and the end of reality become a lens through which I view the technological singularity in Prometheism. And uh, I also make the case that this technological singularity is inextricable from what I called the spectral revolution in Prometheus and Atlas. And the spectral revolution, uh, the, the concept that I developed in that book, is not simply the notion that there's going to be another scientific revolution akin to the Darwinian or the Copernican revolution, which leads to mainstream scientific acceptance of the types of phenomena that parapsychologists have been studying uh, for over a century. But it is actually a revolution that takes us into a post-paradigmatic science in the sense that, you know, Thomas Kuhn uh, believed that science was bounded by paradigms in various epochs, that scientific theorization uh, always took place within the framework of a particular paradigm um, and, and therefore, you know, marginalized various uh, phenomena that did not fit within that framework. And there are these various paradigm shifts in the history of science, which Kuhn, um, I think, rightly identified as uh, at least as political as they are theoretical. Uh, they're very much akin to uh, sociopolitical revolutions in terms of the psychology and motivations involved in, in terms of the motives of the various stakeholders who feel like uh, their professions are threatened by the disruption of the dominant paradigm. And so in Prometheus and Atlas, what I argue is that the coming spectral revolution, which would um, uh, involve a mainstream scientific uh, acceptance of psychical phenomena, is one that will make us recognize for the first time that our scientific theorization and the uh, technological uh, development um, that it that it uh, is inextricable from is always being um, 
artificially hemmed in by these paradigms and, and overly constrained by these paradigms. So, you know, because of the, the nature of uh, a psychical revolution in the sciences, because it involves an understanding of the subconscious and the way in which um, we uh, constrain our scientific theorization subconsciously by a dogmatic adherence to paradigms, uh, acceptance of something like telepathy, uh, clairvoyance, precognition, psychokinesis isn't just a question of the materialistic uh, reductionist paradigm in science. It's also a question of becoming aware of the ways in which our scientific theorization has hitherto been unnecessarily constrained by one paradigm or another. And at that moment, we can recognize that scientific theories are not mirrors to some objectively existent structure in nature. Um, and it's not just a question of polishing the mirror of our subjective mind in order to more adequately reflect objective reality. Rather, scientific theories, and, and in fact, the, the whole paradigmatic structure that makes a particular theory possible is really a model of the world. It's not mirroring reality. Uh, scientific paradigms, let alone the theories that they make possible, are actually model uh, model building enterprises. And the, the main purpose of these models, as, as Heidegger understood well, uh, is technological in nature. It's about uh, power and control over, over the world and over ourselves. Um, and so over ourselves in the sense that, say, genetic engineering takes as its object, you know, the human being. Uh, so that's the, in a nutshell, the concept of the spectral revolution. Um, there's also the sense that it's spectral insofar as uh, it brings us into a recognition of an ontology of becoming, that, you know, uh, the, the nature of uh, phenomena, not to say reality, the nature of phenomena uh, is process, and that we are, as Nietzsche uh, and William James understood, uh, we are in a cosmos that is in a process of becoming. Uh, so spectra is also meant in that sense, in the concept of the spectral revolution. It's not just the spectral in the sense of the ghostly, but it's the spectral in the sense that after this revolution, uh, we will recognize the legitimacy of the ontology of becoming or of process. And um, uh, so, so that's the concept of the spectral revolution. And what I argue in Prometheism is that the more advanced AI research gets, uh, the closer we come to the technological singularity in terms of, say, um, increasingly efficacious genetic engineering, uh, the more it will be inevitable that uh, mainstream scientists in well-funded research programs at places like, you know, MIT and Stanford and so forth will have to finally recognize these um, parapsychological phenomena that they've hitherto been able to marginalize. Uh, because, for example, in the attempt to build a conscious computer, there are going to be certain bottlenecks that reveal the <clears throat> limitations of the materialist framework that they're working in terms of. Uh, so that's, um, uh, well, that's the theoretical aspect of Prometheism. And then there's a kind of more archetypal psychological dimension to this book, where what I'm arguing is that in order to successfully navigate the challenge of the technological singularity, uh, in order to um, 
to uh, come out the other side of this vortex without being totally dehumanized uh, by, you know, egregious misuses of genetic engineering and uh, or, or falling victim to some kind of a monstrous artificial intelligence, we need to recognize that technological science, techno-science, uh, that into integral phenomenon of technological science that Heidegger uh, described, is really a spectral force, that there is an essence of technology which is archetypal in nature, and that uh, technology essentially is an expression of an archetypal force that has daemonically possessed us. And uh, I identify this particular archetype of technological science as that of Prometheus, uh, the uh, titan who gifted us with uh, the science and technology, with you know, brought the, who brought the fire uh, of uh, scientific uh, enlightenment and the fire of the forge of technological development to mankind. And I suggest in Prometheism that when Heidegger, toward the end of his career, is suggesting that only a god can save us now, it's the same god or deity <clears throat> that he evoked in his rectoral address when he became rector of Freiburg University. He gave this address uh, in which he identifies Prometheus as the god of uh, science. And he says that science is, is uh, inextricable from philosophy and that scientists have to recognize the philosophical wellspring of technological science and uh, that the divinity um, uh, whose being is expressed historically in techno-scientific uh, in framing is actually Prometheus. And that the way to, <clears throat> uh, the way to avoid dehumanization uh, and the instrumentalization of human existence through an improper relationship to technology is to retrieve the poetic dimension of techne. It's to, to reestablish a relationship with the poetic uh, aspect of the Janus space of techne. Um, and so, you know, going back to Prometheus and Atlas, I identify the aesthetic idea or the poetic dimension of technological science as the archetype of Prometheus uh, in, in all the positive senses uh, that are evoked by that archetype. You know, Prometheus as uh, the enlightener, Prometheus as the creator, uh, Prometheus the god of forethought, uh, of machination, um, of rebellion, and uh, Prometheus who is, who is the first god who sacrifices himself for the sake of his children, namely for humanity, uh, long before um, Christ becomes an expression of that archetypal idea. So that's uh, you know, a, a rough summary of the project of Prometheism. Um, and uh, let me see what you, you have to say about that, and then we can unpack things as we go along. Yeah, I'm kind of curious. So you mentioned William James, and you were talking about um, kind of a, a, an ontology of becoming that you think this this new paradigm shift will bring about. It kind of reminds me of, uh, of Alfred North Whitehead, who was uh, fairly inspired by William James himself, but they both had this idea of uh, reality as as sort of prehension on the micro level, like um, a kind of pan psychism or maybe pan experientialism is a better term. So, I mean, do you think that that will be part of of this paradigm shift where we'll have this conception of consciousness as as kind of going all the way down? Absolutely, yes. 
and that's what I argue beginning in Prometheus and Atlas, where I draw heavily on William James. I also draw extensively on Bergson to complement Heidegger. There's there's a lot uh, of Bergson. Um, uh, there's a lot of Bergson in the parts of Prometheus and Atlas that deal with Heidegger's philosophy of technology. And so, <clears throat> yes, I would agree with that entirely. And um, Whitehead probably is also, although I'm not as familiar with his thought, probably Whitehead is also relevant insofar as I am affirming the existence of archetypes, although I would suggest that they are not static and eternal that even archetypal structures have a genesis, uh, although they far outlast more transient phenomena that are shaped by them. So um, to talk in empirical terms, I mean, I, I fully embrace William James's uh, notion of radical empiricism. And so to talk in empirical terms, in, in Jamesian empirical terms, not the kind of empiricism that Hume uh, represents, but to, to, uh, to take uh, an empirical, radically empirical perspective, I would refer people to the work of Rupert Sheldrake, um, the, bi the rogue biologist, who has done a lot of research that shows that there are information structures, uh, non-physical non information structures, which play a role in morphological development in nature, not only morphological development in organisms, such as the human embryo, let's say, but uh, or, you know, the morphology of fruit flies or other, uh, you know, creatures that he's done experiments with and uh, uh, other, uh, other entities that have been experimented on the results of which he's presented in his research, but also even crystal formation. So that, for example, Sheldrake found that, you know, in these uh, pharmaceutical companies, when they're working on developing new medicines, the first time they try to crystallize a chemical compound, it takes longer, and they the um, the uh, it, it takes longer uh, than on any subsequent uh, occasion, and in subsequent occasions to uh, crystallize the same compound, even if those second or third or thirtieth attempts take place in a completely unrelated laboratory on the planet. This, the chemical compound crystallizes much more quickly and it has a higher melting point, meaning that it has a greater cohesion. And so what that seems to suggest is that uh, there, there's some kind of a, an information structure that forms after the first crystallization of this uh, chemical compound. And when those chemicals are mixed together elsewhere for a second or, you know, 20 second time, they remember, as it were, that the right way to crystallize. And so this really takes us back to uh, a platonic or even maybe more so an Aristotelian notion of a formal cause, an eidos or formal cause at work in the world um, in addition to efficient causality. Uh, and, and so, uh, yeah, you know, I think that the more effective genetic engineering becomes, the more we attempt to uh, modify very specific aspects of phenotype and, and morphology through manipulating uh, DNA, um, researchers are also going to recognize that efficient causality on the level of DNA is not the whole story, and that they're going to have to take into account the effect of formal causes or uh, morphic resonance, as Sheldrake calls it as well. 
That's interesting. It's, it actually sounds very, um, very similar to something I was I was reading recently about um, European paganism, where supposedly there was this idea, you know, that um, you know, obviously the gods are kind of in process as well, but there was this idea that uh, Odin would, um, that you know, between like the the genetic mixture of your two parents, that Odin would basically influence it to choose the best possible mixture for the life you would live and then there would also be an element of free will in that as well where you'd still have to sort of maximize the potential but there was this idea of that the you know the role of of of, uh, of odin of the god was was to kind of um interfere in this contingent way by sort of uh, directing things in in the right direction this kind of causality so that's quite interesting to hear uh, that kind of description you're providing there yeah, let me go out on a limb and make a little remark about that. Um, you know, I think it's a little overly simplistic. However, I would not dismiss it out of hand. Uh, because when you, and you know, in Prometheism, I go into a rather length, lengthy discussion of Jung uh, on a number of occasions. And um, when you read Jung carefully, you see that he was quite confused, actually, about what he meant by an archetype. And there are times when instead of talking about an archetype in purely abstract universal terms uh, akin to the platonic forms, there are times when Jung talks about archetypes as if they are contingent on the biological evolution of particular communities and they form social psychologies that are relevant only to one or another ethnicity. So that certain ethno-linguistic groups with, with, with a degree of uh, ge internal genetic homogeneity have uh, one or another archetype that would not be relevant to the rest of humanity. And so, you know, I don't dismiss what you just said, in, you know, uh, casually out of hand. I think that there might be some kind of legitimacy to that on some level. Um, and so this actually brings us into a, a really dangerous question, I mean, from the uh, standpoint of political correctness in the current atmosphere, about the scope of relevance of the Prometheus archetype and whether the Prometheus archetype is uniquely relevant to the Indo-European peoples. I, I certainly don't think it's it's exclusively relevant to the Greeks. Uh, if anything, I mean, the Germans, the Germanic people have expressed the Promethean archetype more uh, explicitly and, and with greater greater force and clarity than, than the Greeks had. Um, but I, uh, I, I would say that perhaps uh, one of the reasons why I found the Prometheus archetype so appealing is that it seems to me to transcend even the Indo-European community and to come closest to being an archetype of uh, the creative, industrious, uh, free-spirited potential of humanity at large, uh, as close to that as any uh, archetype can come. Um, and so given the global scope of the challenges we face in terms of the technological singularity, uh, I think that the Prometheus archetype can play a very constructive guiding role. Yeah, you know, um, a lot of your uh, descriptions of of uh, sort of Promethean civilization, it sounds very similar to um, ways people would describe the Faustian archetype or Faustian man, Faustian civilization. So I, I am kind of curious, um, you know, what, why you choose Prometheus or, or what, what role you see for the, the Faustian archetype or, or why you, you, you haven't um, used that as, as much? Good question. Um, so the reason is because the Faustian is dependent on Judeo-Christianity. 
in the same way that the Luciferian is dependent on Judeo-Christianity. So I see Lucifer and Faust as expressions of the Prometheus archetype, but they are instantiations of the Prometheus archetype within the context of uh, a civilization that's been subsumed by Judeo-Christian ideology. So um, I was trying to reach uh, back to an archetype that far predates uh, the institutionalization of Judeo-Christianity in the West and whose relevance can outlast the collapse of the Abrahamic revelation, which I foresee in the not too distant future. Uh, so I would say the Faustian is an expression of the Promethean, but there are many other expressions of the Prometheus archetype other than the Faustian. I would even say that if you look in, in Mayan mythology at the figure of Quetzalcoatl and his conflict with Tezcatlipoca, uh, that Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent, is Prometheus, and that uh, Tezcatlipoca, the lord of the smoking mirror who demands human sacrifices and so forth, is really a Zeus-like figure. Or if you look in the, um, the uh, Mesopotamian mythology, going back to the Sumerians, before the, the Aryans came down into the Middle East in the form of the Persian Empire, um, if you look back at this pre-Aryan Mesopotamian mythologies, you'll see a Prometheus-like figure, an expression of the Prometheus archetype in terms of Enki. So just as those were expressions of the Prometheus archetype long before Judeo-Christianity, Faust is an expression of the Prometheus archetype in the context of Judeo-Christianity. After all, sadly, uh, by the end of, and I found this profoundly disappointing, that by the end of uh, Goethe's presentation of the Faust story, Faust is redeemed and brought up in, um, by the uh, Christian God. So I, I was really reaching for an archetype that both precedes and can outlast um, the, not just the Judeo-Christian uh, belief system, but the Abrahamic revelation in general. Yeah, so, you know, getting back to this idea of the, the singularity and where we're going with it, I mean, um, well, first of all, I'm curious, um, like, how you see this trajectory going in terms of, of how soon you think we could be on the cusp of, of something big with a singularity. But also, I'm, I'm curious, like, it, it seems to me the elites, I mean, I, I can't imagine the elites um, are, are taking these kinds of perspective these kinds of perspectives on, on board much. I, I imagine that they're working in a very sort of narrow materialist paradigm. And I'm, I'm just curious what you think the the dangers of that trajectory is in terms of their misunderstanding of the potential of these kinds of technologies and, you know, the implications of the results of them. Okay, so in terms of, <coughs> excuse me, in terms of the time frame, this is where I actually do agree with um, uh, Ray Kurzweil and these other very materialistically-minded uh, transhumanists, although I completely disagree with their ontology, I reject their ontology, uh, and have deconstructed it, frankly, uh, in my work. But where I do agree with them is on the time frame, that it, it will not take longer than the next 30 years to reach uh, the technological singularity. And the reason I say that, because... Um, when they, when they uh, you know, hit these obstacles, when they reach these bottlenecks um, that they will face on account of their uh, restrictively materialist 
ontology, um, it's at that point that very quickly they will be forced to recognize the legitimacy of parapsychological phenomena and they will incorporate a working knowledge uh, of these phenomena into their continued efforts to achieve something like artificial intelligence or really efficacious uh, genetic engineering that gives us um, uh, control over all aspects of human morphological development. So I think that they're going to uh, they're going to hit unexpected uh, obstacles. They're going to wind up, you know, encountering problems they, they don't anticipate. But they will very quickly adjust. And there's over a century worth of parapsychological research that, you know, they can draw from at that point in order to uh, come up with uh, models that allow them to achieve their basic objectives uh, without being restricted uh, by, by their materialist uh, paradigm. And... Um, so, so I think that, you know, 30 years is, is a reasonable time frame, given the rate of progress in these various fields now. Uh, but I would disagree with you in terms of your characterization of the elite subscribing to materialism. I think that's true of the mid-level people, uh, you know, of, of people in the tech community at various corporations that subscribe to this uh, shallow form of transhumanism. Um, but I do not think that that is a legitimate characterization of, of the true elite. Um, and, I, and I can give you a very uh, uh, compelling reason why. It's because they know full well what the CIA and the Defense Department uh, was doing in terms of remote viewing and, and uh, other uses of psychic abilities for espionage from the 1970s through the early 1990s. You know, the CIA and the Defense Department, as well as several branches of the military, uh, extensively funded and uh, developed um, psychic, uh, not just psychic uh, espionage, but psychic influencing programs. Uh, and they, they um, ran a lot of successful operations based on uh, these abilities that they trained uh, in a cadre of carefully selected um, intelligence operatives and, and military officers. So, you know, the elite are well aware of the efficacy of, of, of these techniques and how they can be trained. And so I would say that uh, the concern is not that they're unaware of uh, the kind of parapsychological phenomena that will eventually have to be faced uh, by researchers in these uh, AI and uh, you know, uh, genetic engineering uh, programs. The concern is that they know better than anybody else how catastrophic the social consequences would be, not just of, let's say, nanotechnology getting out of control or the, the wrong group of people developing an artificial intelligence. They also uh, understand better than anybody else uh, what the catastrophic consequences of mainstream scientific acknowledgement of telepathy or clairvoyance or psychokinesis would be. Uh, I think that the elite um, have a very cynical view uh, of how unprepared humanity at large is for dealing with a society where you can train the ability to look into anybody's mind, where anybody can uh, you know, with, 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 albeit there are virtuosos, just like there are in sports, and there are people who have less aptitude. But still, uh, you know, people would be able to train the ability to uh, 
clairvoyantly view anything that is protected by the veil of secrecy um, w within any government. So state secrecy becomes impossible to maintain. Personal privacy uh, uh, is, uh, is rendered uh, obsolete in a society where there's widespread telepathic ability. And the most disturbing thing of all is the potential that psychokinesis, which has been demonstrated in thousands of laboratory trials with incredible odds against chance uh, uh, that have eva been evaluated by statistical meta-analyses, that psycho psychokinesis can be used um, to remotely influence people, including to, you know, uh, give them an aneurysm or a heart attack. Uh, these, are, these are kinds of things that the CIA did try to do um, for decades uh, in the 70s and the 80s. And uh, I think that the elites are very well aware of the, the tremendous potential for social destabilization uh, that would ensue if there were mainstream scientific recognition of these phenomena. And the closer we get to the technological singularity, the more likely that is to happen, which is why I argue in Prometheism that these elites are probably going to engage in various machinations to bring about an artificial collapse of advanced industrial civilization uh, in the context of which they could monopolize um, uh, these technologies and techniques. Yes, yeah, so that, I mean, that raises another question, which is the kind of geopolitical implications. And it sounds like the potential for another weapons race between great powers. Yeah, well, you almost had that uh, in the psychic domain, or as the Soviet Union called it, the psychotronics domain. You almost had that uh, toward the end of the Cold War from about, mm, let's say, 1977 or so uh, up to, well, at least for a solid decade at the end of the Cold War, you had an intense, quote unquote, psychic arms race, as it were, between the United States and the Soviet Union. Now, that was a blip compared to what could wind up happening on a much larger geopolitical scale uh, if and when these types of abilities are given mainstream scientific recognition. You know, uh, it, it's come to my attention that the Chinese, for example, despite their materialism, um, are pursuing these kinds of research programs. So uh, I think you're right. And then it, when you look at the technological singularity, certainly uh, nanotechnology, robotics, um, drone robotics, uh, and when, when you get to the level of drone soldiers, not just flying drones, but drone robotic armies and so forth, uh, dramatically increase the, d the destructive scope of war uh, and make major wars more fightable than they have been um, in the age of uh, the, the danger of thermonuclear exchange. So there are other kinds of weapons of mass destruction um, like, you know, unleashing robotic armies gu guided by artificial intelligence that would not be as devastating to the environment, but that would, would cause uh, unprecedented level of carnage. If, for example, um, you know, the United States were to go up against China, let's say, 15 years from now rather than now.